Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, August the 30th, 2019. It is currently 1.15 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you from the sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church. Now, there's no one here. I'm standing in an empty sanctuary, but I am back at my church on a Friday for a very specific reason. You see, on Wednesday night, I preached a very important sermon, and that sermon did not record correctly. So I came back up here first to try to determine what went wrong, because I wanted to make sure everything was working, that that did not happen this coming Sunday. I didn't want to get here Sunday and be like, wait a minute, this is not working, and would not have time to fix it, therefore eliminating all of the Sunday uh, Sunday school and Sunday morning sermon from being recorded. So I thought I would come up here on this Friday, check it out. Everything seems to be working properly. Don't really know what happened, but everything seems to be okay now. So the question is, then why am I recording? Well, I'm recording obviously just to test it to make sure, but I have, I have, a, have a difficult task. I kind of need to re-preach the sermon from Wednesday. I don't really want to, Especially don't really want to re-preach it to an empty church, but I have to because I think it is critical. So let me try to get everyone caught up and then I'll try to work through this. I probably will work through this hopefully a little faster than Wednesday. Wednesday we went, I think, an hour and 10 minutes. Uh, so we'll probably go a little faster than we did on Wednesday, but, but we will see. Um, on Sunday... We came to a situation where our study in the Canons of Dort and our study in the Book of Romans, well, they finally came together, which I told everyone was going to happen. The reason we're studying the Canons of Dort is because we're studying the Book of Romans, and I believe there's a major overlap in, those, in these two studies. So, in the Book of Romans, if I may open a Bible right now, the Book of Romans, Romans chapter 2, we read these words, Romans chapter 2. Now, in Romans chapter 2, we're getting kind of a contrast between the way we judge, and we find out that the way we judge is wrong, that our judgment as human beings is flawed, and we went into great detail about that. But in contrast to the way we judge, our hypocritical judgment, our wrong judgment, God judges according to truth. We see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 2. We also find that not only does God judge according to truth, he judges, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 6, he judges every man according to his deeds. He judges us according to our deeds, or he judges us according to our works. Now this raises an important question. How can he judge us according to our works if, as we claim, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. If that is true, then I shouldn't be able to be judged according to my works because all of my sin, all of my mistakes, whether my works are good or whether my works are bad, that should not have any bearing on my salvation because my salvation is not based on my works. It's based on the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. Now, that is the Protestant teaching, the, the non-Catholic teaching, is that my salvation is purely based on what Christ did, not on what I can do, will do, have done, failed to do. 
So we started asking this question. How do we understand then, therefore, how do we understand, therefore, this idea that God judges according to works? Well, the first thing we did is we demonstrated that that teaching goes from the Old Testament all the way to the book of Revelation. The people will be judged according to what they do. And it seems to imply that if those who have done good will inherit heaven, those who have done evil, they will inherit eternal damnation. This seems to be a, a pretty consistent way judgment is spoken of, again, from the Old Testament all the way to the end of the Bible. So we have to wait, find a way to reconcile this. Well, the first thing we did is we looked at the possibility that there could be more than one judgment. And that for Christians, there is a judgment, and that judgment, sometimes referred to as the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of believers, will judge our works, and those works will be tried, and if the works burn up, this is in 1 Corinthians, we will still be saved, because it's a judgment of our works for reward, it's not a judgment on our works for salvation. So even if the works burn up, we will be saved. That's the way it seems to be read in 1 Corinthians. So this would at least acknowledge that there can be a judgment according to works for a believer, but it has nothing to do with our salvation. There's a judgment of nations, which again is a judgment of works. There's a judgment of the lost, which of course is a judgment of works because their sin, their flaws are not covered by the finished work of Christ. So there is, a, there is a sense where that is true, it seems, if we go with the idea of possibly multiple judgments. And I know that's controversial, but if we go with that idea, we seem to have at least some answer. It's not perfect, but we have at least some. Then we decided to go to take it a step further. Okay, if if we can kind of answer this judgment according to works idea by looking at multiple judgments and that these judgments have works, but yet you can still be saved by grace alone through faith alone. That, that's possibly one solution. But we also had to, it would be completely not fair, to look at the standard response given by most evangelical slash Protestant Christians. And that is this idea. The reason the Bible says we are judged according to our works is because works prove our works serve as evidence of salvation. So God can bring us all before him, judge everyone based off their works, and those who are saved, their works will prove their salvation, and those who are not saved, their works will prove their lack of salvation. This is the idea of of work serving as evidence of salvation. This is a standard teaching within the evangelical Protestant world. If you are saved, your works will prove it. All right? Now, this is an important concept that a lot of people look at. And, and we, we raised an important question about that, that idea. If you go to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, I'm, I'm used to, I'm used to, uh, I'm standing, you know, behind the pulpit, and so I'm used to kind of preaching, I, I feel like now I'm going to start preaching like I would if everyone was here, because I'm in that environment, instead of when I'm doing a live recording at home, I, I, I kind of approach it a little differently, but that's okay, that's okay. Matthew chapter 7, all right, Matthew chapter 7, let's go to the famous verse, verse 20. 
Wherefore, by their fruits, ye shall know them. Stop right there. Matthew chapter 7, verse 20. Wherefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. Now, this, is, this verse is used for this evidential kind of idea. Sometimes Christians will say, I'm not judging you. I'm just inspecting your fruit. I'm just a fruit inspector. And your fruit will prove whether you're a Christian or it will prove if you're not a Christian. And then everyone uses this idea. Now, I, I could argue that maybe this is not what this, uh, that this chapter needs to be. Matthew chapter 7 needs to be studied a little closer and look for some other possible ways of handling this. But that's how Christians do this. Now, I want you to take the logic of this. This fits in right with this idea of evidential or, or works as being, as, uh, being ser- serving as evidence, if I can get the words out right that this, we're going to really challenge this idea. Now, they'll go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, which seems to support it on the surface. Hey, by your fruits you will know them. Exactly. God can judge us according to our works because our fruit will be evident within our works. And if it's not, then we're not saved. I, okay. But let's not take 20, verse, Matthew chapter 7, verse 20 out of its context. Let's continue to read because I think we find some problems. Verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now stop right there. Wait a minute. Now we have individuals who are claiming Christ is Lord. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 7. They're going to say, Lord, Lord. They're acknowledging, professing, claiming, confessing that he is Lord. However, we're going to discover that that's not even sufficient. Let me read. uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Stop right there. All right. So according to this verse, it seems to appear that simply professing, confessing, believing that Christ is Lord is not enough. You have to do the will of his Father, you have to do the will of God the Father. Right, well, what's his will? What, what, what do they mean by that? Right? Because this, again, seems to imply you're going to be judged based off your works. Now, if, I, if I'm going to be judged based on if I do the will of God, and if the will of God is revealed in the Scripture, then that means if I'm truly following the will of God, I'm obeying all Scripture. This raises some important questions. But let me show you about this judging by fruit idea. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Okay, we we have a a profession of faith. They claim Lord, Lord. We have a profession, a confession of Christ being Lord. We're going to learn that's not sufficient. Have we not prophesied in thy name? They have proclaimed truth in the name of God. They have proclaimed truth. They have prophesied. They have preached. They have proclaimed truth. Ideas, or, or they, they professed what they believe to be true, all right, in the name of God. They have preached in the name of God. That, we're going to learn, is not sufficient. All right, so they've got an outward profession. They are pre- proclaiming something in his name. And in thy name have cast out devils. They've cast out demons. And in thy name done many wonderful works. So let's go through all these things that these people in Matthew 7, 21 have. Remember, according to verse 20, your fruits, you're going to know them. Well, here are individuals who have an outward profession. Lord, Lord. They confess and profess that Christ is Lord. 
That is not sufficient. They have proclaimed, they have preached, they have prophesied in His name. That is not sufficient. They have cast out devils. That is not sufficient. They have done many wonderful works. That is not sufficient. And the reason we know that's not sufficient, look at verse 23. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, wait a minute. By, that would sound like sufficient fruit. But that is not even enough fruit. So then how, if we're going to be judged by works, and works is evidence of salvation, then I think we have to at least acknowledge what we have to try to figure out what work, therefore, is the evidence of one's salvation. Because that's a lot of work, which doesn't seem to prove any evidence. Now, I'll just argue, I'll back this up. I didn't do this on Wednesday. If you go back to verse 15 of, of Matthew chapter 7, I think we, we have some context here that's important. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. The them has to refer to the false prophets. I think Matthew seven fifteen through 23, even though it's been ripped out of context to apply to everyone, I think this is about false prophets. And if we take it to about false prophets, this means the, the, the test here is not about the fruit is not their works because they do lots of works. The fruit has to be their teaching. They're false prophets. They are teaching false doctrine. This seems to be a doctrinal test, not a test of, hey, you did this, you did that. This seems to be that kind of a test. There has to be, we have to somehow apply verses 15 to 23 to false prophets because verse 15 sets up that concept. All right? But this raises the question. If for those who argue, hey, we're judged according to our works because works going to prove whether we're saved, here's a lot of people who did a lot of works and they were not saved. So this is what someone would come back and argue. The evidential side would argue, well, yes. Works alone are not sufficient. You need works plus the right belief. You have to have the right belief and you have the right works. Then that will prove you are saved. All right? You could make that argument, but what works? How, how many? Like the evidential side raises lots of questions. All right, so this, so right there just, just shows you the, the difficulty in this. Now, this is what I want to do. I'm going to go through this quick. On Wednesday, I gave everyone 12. 12, uh, As someone in my church, in their notes, they placed it this way. A case study on assurance of election. Now, there's a reason they stated it this way, and I'll explain in a minute. This is going to be a case study on this idea that your works is the evidence of your salvation. The way you have assurance about your salvation is to look at your works. We're going to take this idea, say this idea is correct, then examine this idea based off documents that support it, take its idea to its logical conclusion, and see if we can find some problems in it, which I think, I think you've already seen we found some problems. Hey, you're judged according to your works because your works prove you're saved. Matthew chapter 7 has a whole, uh, 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 some people 
being judged, who have all kinds of works, yet they're not saved. So this already would indicate that works alone is not a sufficient evidence of one's salvation. Or you're going to have to argue you need works plus you need something else. All right? At some point, it's going to become very difficult to have any assurance. But let's see. This is what we're going to do. We're going to use three sources of information. We're going to use the, uh, we're going to actually use, I guess, four. We're going to use the Canons of Dort. We're going to use the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession. And we're going to use a sermon. Now, the sermon I'm using has been posted on the VBC 66 app. You can listen to it in the Sermon and Bible Study Notes section. Um, it, there's four parts. Basically, it's something dealing with assurance of your faith or test uh, to, t- to test your faith. I can't remember the exact title of them, um, but you can uh, look them up and you can find them. Now, the reason I posted those four sermons is those four sermons is preached by someone who believes in this evidential, this work serves as evidence idea. And so I wanted you to hear their perspective, not just me challenge the perspective. I want you to hear their perspective. And when you listen to their perspective, you have to do something. You have to take that idea to its logical conclusion. For example, if you claim works prove someone's salvation and works is how I can be assured of my salvation, I have to look to my works, then you have to be able to answer some very difficult questions. How many works must I have? What kind of works? How do I judge those works to determine if I'm saved or not saved? Can I even have assurance in this life? And I want you to think about this. The evidential side, that side argues this. The assurance of my salvation is not found in the finished work of Christ. The assurance of my salvation is found in my works. I believe that is completely contrary to the evangelical Protestant Christian teaching The salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. If my assurance is found in me, that's taking the focus off the wrong thing. But the evidential idea says that. You can have assurance in your Christian life. How do you know you, how can you know if you're saved? Well, you've got to take a test. Here's the test. Here's 12 things you have to look for. If you look at these 12 things, you find them in your life, you pass the test. If you don't, you fail the test. And remember, they're the ones who come up with the test. And then we must judge ourselves. So we're literally going with our judgment, judging our works, and our works and my judgment equals my assurance. Versus, my assurance can only be found in the finished work of Christ. And my only hope is in the finished work of Christ. This is an important concept, and and I think many Christians have never given this much thought. And I know I'm challenging a very common teaching, but I think we have to be willing to do that. So, Let's jump in. All right, I'm going to go through these quickly. Canons of Dort. I'm turning on my Kindle. Canons of Dort, Article 12. All right, this is Article 12 on the Canons of Dort. And uh, we are studying the Canons of Dort. I can't not review. I'm not going to go back and review everything about the Canons of Dort. Very important historical document in the history of Christianity. Um, Clearly, they're fighting the remonstrance. they, they were fighting, uh, you know, uh, Pelagianism. Uh, they, they are, they're going against a way. They obviously believe in election. They obviously believe in the eternal security of the believer, that someone who is saved cannot lose their salvation. 
And so they ask, they want to talk about in Article 12, how can you have assurance that you are saved? Now we're going to use, again, the Canons, Westminster, London Baptist Confession of Faith, and a sermon to basically come up with 12 points that we need to understand that the evidential side would argue for. Now, not everyone on the evidential side, and when I say the evidential side, again, this is the side, this is the group, this is the movement, or the, the belief with, within Protestant Christianity, evangelical Christianity, that your works is the proof of your salvation, so you're going to be judged according to your works because your works will prove whether you're saved or not saved, and if you need assurance, you look to your works because your works will prove whether you are saved or not saved. We're going to take 12 points from these different sources that all agree with this evidential idea, and we're going to, we're going to take them at their word, and then we're going to try to take it to its logical con- conclusion. All right? Here we go. Article 12. This is called the Assurance of Election. Let me read. The elect, in due time, though in various degrees and in different measures attain the assurance of this, their eternal and unchangeable election. All right, the first point, this comes from the Canons of Dort. You want to write down the source of this. The first thing that they argue is this. Assurance of your salvation, assurance of your election, occurs over time and in different ways. Assurance occurs over time and in different ways. Let me read that again from the Canons of Dort. The elect in due time, though in various degrees and in different measures, attain the assurance of this, their eternal and unchangeable election. Now, this is an argument that not everyone agrees with. All right? I want to make this very clear. Not everyone agrees with this concept within the Protestant world. Some will argue that, no, when you're saved, you can have assurance right then, right there. This is what you need to do. You need to walk an aisle, say a prayer, and then write the date, the time, the hour, right? The place in the front of your Bible. And whenever you begin to have doubts about your salvation, you just go back and go, no, on You know, August the 30th in 2019 at 1 p.m. at wherever, I said a prayer, therefore I am saved. They will argue that that within the evangelical world would argue assurance is 100% guaranteed. It doesn't happen over time. It happens instantaneously. All you have to do, and if you doubt your salvation, you just go back and say the prayer again, and you get that nailed down is the way many pastors would teach it. This is arguing a different perspective, that you can have assurance, right? Your salvation is unchangeable, it's eternal, it cannot be lost, and you can have assurance. However, this assurance develops over time, and in different ways, and at different levels, different measures, all right? That... And we could talk about that. The main thing I want to point out here is there's not even necessarily agreement within, within the evangelical Protestant world on how the assurance works. Do I get it instantaneously? Do I develop it over time? Okay, if I develop it, oh, develop it over time, what am I looking for? How, what, what has to happen to, make, to develop this? What, what has to happen to, to make this occur? Now, this is a very important point, but 
we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in, 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 in due time. All right. Number two. So the first assurance occurs over time and in different uh, and in different ways. All right. Number two. I'll read again from the uh, Canons of Dort. Let me read the whole thing. The elect in due time, though in various degrees and in different measures, attain assurance of this, their eternal and unchangeable election, not by inquisitively prying into the secret and deep things of God. Stop right there. Number, so number one, assurance comes different times, different ways. Number two, this assurance comes not by observing or not, or not by prying into secret things. You do not get your assurance by prying into secret things. Now, what they mean by this, the writers of the Canons of Dort um, and, and any, anyone else um, who believes in, 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 a, in a, a, an election idea of salvation, that we are elect to salvation, um, they would argue you do not get assurance by prying into the secret things of God. In other words, you don't get, into, you don't get assurance of salvation by prying into the uh, secret things of God to find out whose name is on the list of the elect, trying to understand you know, when God elected you, how God elected you. Trying to understand that is not going to give you any greater assurance. You're not going to be able to figure it out. You're not going to be able to like crack the code. Okay, I know for sure God elected me because I, I studied this and I figured it out. N- no. You're not going to figure it out by studying the secret things of God, the private things of God, because they are beyond our understanding, out of our reach. And if God wanted them known, he would have revealed them to us. So they would argue, uh, number one, this is the canons of Dort, number one, you get this assurance um, over time and in different ways. And number two, this assurance does not come by prying into the secret things of God, like the idea of the list of an elect or something along those lines. All right? Number three, all right, very important. How then do I get this assurance? Assurance develops over time. It doesn't come from prying into the secret things of God. Then how do I get this assurance? According to the canons of Dort, I gain this assurance of my salvation, listen carefully, by observing in themselves with a spiritual joy and holy pleasure the infallible fruits of election. All right? So let's break this down. Here we go. According to the canons of Dort, and according to all those who hold to the, uh, you know, uh, evidential idea, right? Hey, I can be judged according to my works because my works is going to prove that I'm saved. So if I want assurance of my salvation, where do I look? Here's number three. You gain this uh, assurance by observing in yourself. Those are the exact words from the canons of Dort. But by observing in themselves. If you want assurance of your salvation, according to the canons of Dort and those who hold to the evidential idea, you find it by looking at yourself. You hold the key. Now, there's a lots of issues with this. One, I'm not looking to something, I'm not looking to the perfect finished work of Christ, which, we, which is where I think I should look, especially if I believe in the evangelical Protestant idea of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. So I think that's already a problem. The focus is wrong. The focus is not on the finished work of Christ. The, the focus is on me. That's the, that's the first problem. The second problem is um, I'm the one looking and I'm the one judging and I'm the one determining. 
If I'm judging myself, I'm somehow then, I somehow believe that my judgment is correct because my assurance is coming from my own observation and from my own judgment. Well, this seems to completely contradict the idea that we can't judge things correctly because of our sinful nature. Sinners can perceive in themselves not to be as sinful as they think they are. Christians can perceive themselves to be more godly than they actually are. So if we cannot trust our judgment to say that the way you find assurance is by looking in yourself, looking to yourself, is shaky, questionable, and has major problems. As we saw in Matthew 7, all of those people believed they were saved. Their judgment of themselves was wrong. Hey, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? I'm sorry, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, wait a minute. Their judgment was wrong. Well, if their judgment was wrong, couldn't my judgment be wrong? But the canons of Dort are telling us to we observe in ourselves. With a spiritual joy and holy pleasure, all right, and this is going to lead us to number four, the infallible fruits of election. The infallible fruits of election. So let's go through these again, all right? Again, this is the evidential idea. We're using this as a case study. The evidential idea teaches, number one, that assurance occurs over time in a different way. Now, not everyone on the evidential side agrees with that. Some argue that assurance can come instantaneously by remembering the day, the place, the time they made a decision for Christ. Number two, this assurance comes not by prying into the secret things of God. You don't, you don't find it that way, according to, this, to the canons of Dort. Number three, you do get this assurance by observing in yourself. And this is shaky. It's got the wrong focus. It's, it's me making the judgment. There's just all kinds of problems with it. Number four, when I do look into myself, if I want assurance, what do I need to look for? I need to find the infallible fruit. I need to look to the infallible fruit. Now, to say that this is infallible means that the fruit, if I find this fruit in my life, it's an infallible proof that I am saved. It's infallible. It cannot be wrong. Now, they claim, again from the canons of Dort, uh, so you observe in yourself with a spiritual joy and holy pleasure the infallible fruits of election pointed out in the word of God such as. Now, they, they claim that this infallible fruit is pointed out in the word of God. They don't give us any scriptures here, which is interesting because in other sections of the canons of Dort they do. But they don't quote any scripture. But they do give us a... a a sampling of this infallible fruit. Here's what they claim is infallible fruit. Number one, true faith in Christ. If you have true faith in Christ, then you have infallible fruit. Well, wait a minute. In Matthew 7, they said, Lord, Lord. I guess that was a false faith. They thought it was a true faith, but it was a false faith. Can I have a faith that I believe is true faith in Christ, but actually be a false faith. How do I know my faith is true? Now, is there a doctrinal test? Is there a doctrinal test? Now, many evangelical churches don't give people a doctrinal test. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Okay, well, what do I need to believe? I believe he died on the cross for my sins. Yeah, okay, do I have to believe in the virgin birth? 
Do I have to believe you know, in the incarnation? Do I have to believe in the ascension? Do I have to, to believe that he was without sin? Do I have, do, I mean, do I have to believe uh, in uh, the, uh, the doctrine of the... How many things do I have to believe to, to, to be true faith in Christ? Now, the early church held people to a, a doctrinal standard by they had to accept the creeds, either the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Athanasian, or all the creeds. They had, to, they had to confess those creeds and acknowledge those creeds. They don't do that in modern evangelical churches. So how do you determine if it's true faith? The first test is true faith in Christ, and that is about as subjective as it can be, unless you have an objective sta- test in order to test if someone's faith is genuine or not. And can someone believe their faith is genuine when it's not genuine? How do you determine this? Now, again, this is the evidence that I'm supposed to find out. If I want assurance, I'm, this is the evidence I'm supposed to look for. Number two, so the first is true faith in Christ. Number two, filial fear. Filial fear. Now, this is a term that references basically godly fear or fearing God as you would, as you would have reverence and fear for an, a, a parent or, a, or, a, or your father. So the second test is we must fear God. Now, again, that sounds great, sounds wonderful, sounds awesome. Okay, if we don't ask too many questions, you can convince yourself how how smart this all sounds. But wait a minute. How do I know if I truly fear God? Now, if I go to the book of Proverbs and other parts of the Bible, it seems to indicate that if I fear God, I'll hate every evil way and depart from, I'll hate every evil way and depart from evil and abstain from evil. Well, if I commit sin of any kind, then do I demonstrate I have true fear of God or do I demonstrate I have a false fear of God? Filial fear. It sounds like a great, a great infallible fruit, but how do I know? And how much fear do I must have? Again, it just seems like a generic thing that this is supposedly to be the infallible fruit. So, so far, this is what a person has. You want assurance? You look to the infallible fruit that's found in yourself. And what do you look for specifically? Do you have true faith in Christ? Do you have filial fear? Do you have true fear of God? Number three, a godly sorrow for sin. A godly sorrow for sin. Now, this a godly sorrow for all sin? Or is this godly sorrow over big sins? And what, what does godly sorrow for sin look like? How much sorrow should a person have? How do you, again, this is supposedly infallible fruit. Sorrow for sin. Now, I I do acknowledge that I don't know if there's a way to measure it. I I think that's almost impossible to measure it in any meaningful way. But I do think it's an important concept that we have to ask ourselves about, hey, how much, what does it look like? Uh, How much does one have to have? I I think it's an important thing. I would argue this. That the Christian, that someone who is worried about their sin, right? Who's worried about their sin, at least in some level, feel guilty about their sin. I think, I think you could argue, okay, that, that could serve as some kind of an, an evidence. I just think it's very subjective. Because I think you're taking different people who emotionally handle things differently. You have some people who, who rarely get emotional. They rarely get upset about anything. Well, they're... they're how are they going to demonstrate their sorrow for sin versus the person who cries over everything? 
The person who cries about everything will probably cry about their sin. The person who never gets emotional will probably not show any emotion. So does the person who doesn't look like they have emotion have to start acting like the person who's emotional all the time? And if the person who's emotional all the time, are they any more emotional over their sin than they are about a a Disney movie with a sad scene of a puppy dying? Again, to say that this is the infallible fruit, it, it's, it's, it's shaky, it's, it's subjective. Next, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. A hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Again, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. That sounds like, man, uh, I should be able to, to look to myself. But how much hungering and thirsting does one have to have to demonstrate the infallible fruit of salvation? Again, to me, it sounds very, and I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I say this as nicely as I can, this sounds about as subjective as subjective can be. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness, what does that look like? What if you have Christians who rarely read the Bible, rarely study the Bible? They, 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 they've not engaged in any serious Bible study in a long time. They do go to church, though. Are they hungering and thirsting after righteousness? What of a, of a believer who spends more time playing video games than they do studying the Bible? Do they demonstrate they're not saved? What, what do you have to do to prove it? Again, it sounds subjective. Here's the point that I want to drive home here. here. And, I, and, I, and I don't want to spend too much time on this. I, I said a lot more things on Wednesday, and I want to say them all right now, and I'm trying to remember everything that I said to try to get this recording as, 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 as good as possible. But I think here's the reality of the situation. To claim that uh, assurance of my salvation comes from finding this infallible fruit, and then you start looking at this infallible fruit that they list, and this is just their list. There's all kinds of lists of the evidence that proves you're saved. The sermons, the four, the four parts uh, series of sermons I posted on the VBC 66 app in the Sermon and Bible Study Notes section, they give a different list. Now, some of, the, some of the lists will overlap, but the point is, how come everyone has a different list? This is the evidence that proves it. According to the Canons of Dort, their list is the infallible fruit. Well, wait a minute. I bet you the pastor who preached the sermons that I posted on the app, he probably believes his list is infallible. That this is the infallible fruit. Everyone has what they claim proves if someone is saved or not saved. The evidential side, here's the thing. It is people who get, who they determine what the evidence is by going through the scriptures, finding the scriptures that they think this is the evidence, they create their list, then they judge themselves. If that is not the most subjective, questionable way of doing things, then I don't know what it is. Now, every side will, all the evidential side people say, no, 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 no. We get these lists from the scriptures. Yeah, you all, you all, but you all have different lists. And you all claim that this proves you're saved. And that this list is how I'm going to be judged. And if my works, if I, if I take this test now and I can't pass the test based on the evidence the infallible fruit that you say I'm supposed to have, then what you're telling me is when I stand before God, I am not going to be saved. Whether I believe in Christ or not believe in Christ, because clearly my faith in Christ is not true because it's not producing the evidence which you claim I'm supposed to have. It is, a, it is subjective, questionable, and I argue it, it, it cannot even lead to assurance. 
I will argue it leads to a lack of assurance. All right? So, that's the canons of Dort. Now let's turn to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. The London, uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith or the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm going to be turning to chapter 18 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. We're going to try to get through the rest of these as we can. All right, here we go. Chapter 18, it's called Of the Assurance of Grace and Salvation. All right, of, this again, the idea of assurance. How can I know that I have received God's grace and I have salvation? How can I know? Well, according to this. Here's how you know, or here's, here's what they're going to teach us. Here's, here's what they're going to say. Number one, here we go. Although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and state of salvation. Let's stop right here. All right. Let's go through these again, our, our case study that we're building. Here, again, here's the evidential side making their argument. We're using their documents to make their argument. Argument number one, right? Assurance occurs over time and in different ways. Now, not every one of the evidential side agrees with that, but you get the idea. Number two, you don't gain assurance by prying into the secret things of God, like a list of the elect. Number three, you do find assurance by observing in yourself. According to the evidential side, if I want assurance of my salvation, I don't look to Christ, I look to self. Right? I think that's completely, completely contradictory uh, to a, a, a biblical understanding from the uh, evangelical Protestant side. That, looks, that sounds something more like the Catholic side. Right? Number four, I gain assurance of salvation by finding infallible fruit. If I want assurance, I find the infallible fruit. According to the canons of Dort, the infallible fruit is true faith in Christ, filial fear or godly fear, godly sorrow over sin, and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. When I find that, now they, they go on to say etc. in the canons of, canons of Dort because they don't list all of them, but if I find those, then I can start going, Woo, I have assurance of salvation. I have assurance of salvation. Now again, how much of these do I have to maintain? How long do I have to maintain it? What if there's ups and downs in my Christian life? What? I don't know. All right. Then we turn to the London Baptist Confession of Faith, and then we read literally the most... <laughs> this, to me, destroys the whole evidential side. Because they acknowledge this, and this is number five. Even lost people can convince themselves... Uh, they're, they're saved and, um, yes, okay. Uh, even lost people can convince themselves they're saved. That's the way we put it down in our notes. Um, the, the fifth thing the evidential side has to argue is that even lost people can convince themselves that they're saved. And the London Baptist Confession of Faith agrees with this by saying, although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. Stop right there. According to them, according to the evidential side, even lost people can convince themselves that they are saved. Well, wait a minute. 
If even lost people can convince themselves that they're saved, and again, we saw that in Matthew 7, they were convinced they were saved because they had a profession of faith and they had actual works and that still wasn't sufficient. They still were not saved. Well, then how can, how can the evidential side ever, how can, how can you ever have assurance even if you acknowledge that even a lost person can have a false assurance? How do you know that your assurance is not a false assurance? Well, I, I can't know that if my assurance is found within me and not found in something outside of myself, something that is transcendent to myself, and that being the finished work of Christ. That is not within me. That is outside of me. And that seems to be where I could have true, fixed, unshakable assurance. All right, let's continue. So number five, even lost people. All right, number six, I'll I'll continue to uh, read from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. All right, Um, now they argue that this uh, false assurance will ultimately perish. The lost people's uh, assurance will ultimately perish, but they don't tell us when. So ultimately, according to Matthew 7, those individuals, they lost their assurance when they were being judged. So they spent their whole life thinking they were saved and did not find out until they stood before God. Well, so then you have to argue someone could literally have a false assurance all the way to the point of judgment. Well, that just caused the evidential side completely, it it causes all kinds of questions with that. All right, let's see what they go on to say. Yet such as true believers in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured. Now stop right there. <laughs> this, is, this is complete double talk. This is double speak. This, this is the kind of thing that drives me absolutely crazy. The, the, the logical fallacies here are, are starting to stack up. Now let me, make, let me try to state this as, as uh, to try to make this sound as foolish as it, it should sound to anyone listening. They are claiming that, hey, you could be completely lost, yet be completely assured that you're saved, and believe that until you stand before God. However, however, literally in the same breath, they go on to say, true Christians, right, who walk in good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured. Now, I don't know how I can be certainly assured if even a lost person can be certainly assured. How do I know my certainty is not like the certainty of a lost person? On one hand, you acknowledge lost people can have assurance, and then you turn around and say, but I can be certainly assured. Now, how can I be certainly assured? Well, they're going to argue that I can be certainly assured (laughs) by looking ultimately to myself, which can't be any certainty. This is like this is like so broken when you really break this down. But so number so let's go through these again. Number one, assurance occurs and uh, and over time in different ways. Number two, this assurance does not come by prying into the secret things of God. Number three, this assurance comes by observing in yourself. All right. Number four, this certainty it c- comes by finding the infallible fruit that supposedly is pointed out in Scripture. All right. I won't list the ones we've covered. Number five, uh, 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 even lost people can convince themselves that they're saved. And this can last all the way until the point that they're dead and facing judgment. 
Number six, Christians in this life can have a certainty and assurance. All right? That, you know, we could, we could talk all day about that one. All right. Let's continue in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is paragraph two in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Paragraph two, also I believe in the Westminster Confession. This certainty is not a bare conjectural conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. All right, now I can say amen right here. This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. No, our certainty is not conjecture. It's not probable. It's not fallible. But it is an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. I'll stop right there. We need to write this one down. All right? So, number seven, according to the London Baptist Confession, infallible assurance is founded upon the blood and righteousness of Christ as revealed in the gospel. That sounds so good. The infallible assurance comes from the blood of Christ. It comes from what Christ did. That's the infallible assurance according to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now, if they stopped right there, you would think that they're contradicting the canons of Dort. But no, they're going to continue and they're going to literally basically make this point worthless, but let's make sure we have this one down. And I think this is the important one. According to them, the infallible assurance is found in the blood of Christ and his finished work, what Jesus did. And I will argue that, that that has to be where we get our assurance. Now, how do we, how do we work this out? That, hey, wait, we're going to be judged according to our works and our good works. We, you can't make our judgment according to our works that works prove we're saved. Or if, 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 if I'm going to argue that, my assurance can't be based off that because my assurance has to be based off the finished work of Christ. At least you would have to argue that our assurance cannot become from that. If you're going to argue God, that our works will prove we're saved to God, you, you, you've got other questions to work out there. But our assurance cannot be based off that. Because when it comes to God judging our works, he could judge our works correctly. I cannot judge my works correctly. So I, I think we've got to be very careful how we connect these ideas. I think we have to be very careful how we connect these Ideas and, and I, there's a. There, I almost want to take off in a different direction right now, but I cannot. We have to finish this. All right. So, number seven, again from the London Baptist Confession of Faith: Infallible assurance is founded upon the blood and righteousness of Christ, revealed in the gospel. But this leads us to number eight. <laughs> All right. Here's where the London Baptist Confession of Faith in my opinion, gets us right back into the same problem. After they tell us our infallible assurance is founded uh, on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, they then throw in this word, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit 
unto which promises are made and on the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with, it, with our spirits that we are the children of God and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. All right? Now, now this is number eight. According to the London Baptist Confession of Faith, we gain this assurance upon an inward evidence an inward evidence of the Spirit. An inward evidence of the Spirit. Now, this, the only way to describe this would be this way. According to the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the other way you gain your assurance is you have an inward witness that you are saved, or you could state it this way, you feel saved. You feel saved. Well, that's not infallible. That is, that is, that is broken logic. Because if you're going to make assurance based on how you feel, that will change every single month. Maybe even every hour, depending on how you go with your feelings. So this creates major problems. There's a lot more we could say here. There's a scripture we could quote there that they're, they're making a reference to. But we won't be able to do that right now because of time. So according, so we've got, I'll go through these again. Number one, assurance occurs. Over time in different ways. Number two, not by prying into secret things. Number three, by observing in ourself. Number four, finding infallible fruit. Number five, even lost people can convince themselves they're saved. Again, number five would cause a problem with number eight, but it's okay. Number six, Christians in this life can have a certainty and assurance. Number seven, infallible assurance is founded upon the blood and righteousness revealed in the gospel. And number eight, uh, and uh, you also, this assurance comes upon an inward evidence that must be present. In other words, you feel that you are saved. All right? Let's go to paragraph three of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. They go on to say, This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and con conflict with many difficulties before he be partakers of it. All right. Next, we can say it this way. This infallible assurance takes time. This infallible assurance takes time. According to the London Baptist Confession of Faith, if you want this infallible assurance, it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. Now, again, I don't know. If it's going to take time, I don't know how you can ever have it. Because if it takes time, okay, man, all right, I got to look for this. I got to do that. Okay, do I feel it? Okay, do this. Okay, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for that. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Oh, oh, okay, I feel, I feel like I got it. Well, wait a minute. Now those things that I was looking for, because I'm looking to myself, it, it makes no sense. If, if, if my infallible assurance is founded on the finished work of Christ, then the assurance should be simple. It shouldn't develop time. I know what Christ did. I know he did that for me. I'm a sinner. He's my savior. He saved me by his sacrifice on the cross. I cannot save myself. Therefore, I am assured of salvation. What time, how much time does it take to come to that conclusion? Are, you, are, you, are they saying this assurance, the feeling of this assurance comes over time? Now you're making it subjective. You're making it subjective. All right. Number 10. They go on to say, 
Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, with, without extraordinary revelation and in the right use of means, attain thereunto. And therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. Stop right here. Number 10. It's every Christian's responsibility to be sure. It's every Christian's responsibility to be sure, and they quote 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It's your responsibility to make your calling and election sure. It's your responsibility. Now, if it's your responsibility, how do you do this? If we go through all the things that they've told us, we have contradictory ideas. Right? I'm supposed to look to the blood of Christ. Wait, I'm supposed to wait for an inward feeling. Wait, I'm supposed to look for infallible fruit. How am I ever, it's going to take time. How, how are you ever going to know for sure? And in and, and the minute you think you are for sure, we are reminded of going through all of these works that even lost people can be sure. Then how can I be sure? But yet they tell us that I can have certainty. This, this, is, like a, this is like a circle of broken logic. But it, it looks so good when you stand way back. When you get close, you start finding all the problems and contradictions. All right. Now we need to get to number 11. All right. All right. We'll go to paragraph number four. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation, uh, divers ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence and persevering of it. All right. Now, this is very important. They say we can have certainty, that we can have assurance, that I can have an assurance that I'm saved, but then they come along and tell me that, listen, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation driven away. It can be pushed away. It can be shaken. It can be diminished. It can be intermitted or or interrupted as by negligence and preserving of it. And how does this happen? How can I lose my assurance? By falling into some special sin, which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit. By some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light yet, they are never destitute of the seed of God and light of faith. All right, we can put this as number 11. All true believers can lose their assurance. All true believers can lose their assurance. And you can do that by falling into some special sin. Now, what the special sin is, they don't tell us a special sin. This seems to classify special sin versus normal sins. If you, if you, if you fall into normal sins, you're okay. But if you fall into the special sin, the big sin, the mortal sin, now you can lose yourself. You can lose your assurance of salvation. Now, wait a minute. They said, I can have certainty. Now they're arguing that I can lose that certainty. So that means even if I, you can't say that I can have certainty in this life because the only way I can have certainty in this life, therefore, would be to never fall into any special sin. 
Now, I guess if I don't fall into any special sin, I can sin all day and have certainty. Again, this is as subjective as subjective can be. All right, let's go through these again. Number one, assurance occurs over time in different ways. Number two, you don't gain this assurance by prying into secret things. Number three, you gain this assurance by observing in yourself. Number four, you uh, gain this assurance by finding infallible fruit, right? Uh, Number five, you uh, even lost people, though, can convince themselves they're saved. Number six, Christians in this life can have certainty. Number seven, infallible assurance is founded upon the blood and righteousness as revealed in the gospel. Number eight, uh, and not only is this infallible proof come from the finished work of Christ, it comes from an inward evidence that must be present. And this inward evidence basically amounts to you feeling saved. Number nine, this infallible assurance takes time. Number 10, every Christian's, it's every Christian's responsibility to be sure. And number 11, all true believers can lose their assurance. Completely lose it. You can completely, you can, according to them, you can, you, God can withdraw the light of his countenance, suffering you as a Christian to, uh, to, uh, to walk in darkness and have no light. You can literally get to the point where you're walking in complete darkness. You have no light. You're still saved, but you've lost your assurance. And, and the, how did you lose your assurance? Because you're looking, according to this, even though the London Baptist Confession of Faith have not come right out and said this, this is, this is a clear indication of how they're thinking. You lose it because of what you do. You lose your assurance because you're basing your assurance on what you do. If you were basing your assurance on what Christ did, you can't lose that assurance. But if you base it on yourself, you can. All right? And then number 12. Well, number 12 comes from a sermon. Um, it comes, and I'm not going to go to, I'm not going to talk about number 12 here today. All right? Because we'll probably pick up uh, number 12. Um, we'll probably pick that up Sunday morning. Um, and try to get there. So there you have it. Now, what, what are some concluding ideas we can get from this? All right, here's what we need to take from all of this. And then I'll, I'll wrap this up, all right? I know it's taken a long time, but that's okay. Trust me, I did not want to re-preach this. There's a lot of other things I'd like to talk about, right? A lot, of, a lot of other things I'd like to talk about, but, you know, sometimes you have to do this when technology doesn't work out. Here's what we need. To, we need to try to find a way to wrap all of this up. Here we go. Number one. If you argue that the reason the Bible says we are judged according to our works, because our works will prove that we are saved, if you teach that, right? Hey, we're saved, or that we're going to be judged according to our works because our works will prove that are saved. You have to leave that concept as being it proves to God we're saved, but you cannot argue that your works prove to you that you're saved because now you're making this evidential idea, and as we've already seen, this evidential idea contradicts itself. It's broken logic. It's circular reasoning. It's just flawed. It makes, it makes your works as the, the assurance of your salvation comes from you. The assurance of your salvation comes from what you have done. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. 
It's one thing to say, well, God can judge my works and God will determine for my works whether I'm saved or I'm not saved because we would have to argue that God would judge more than our works. He would have to judge the heart. He would have to judge something beyond that. Even that is, is problematic. But if you, if you transfer this evidential idea that, hey, works is the evidence God will look to determine if I'm saved, and I take that and I'll apply it to myself, and the way I know I'm saved is by looking to my works, I end up with an evidential system that is flawed, that is broken, and that is messed up. So I think that's number one. You cannot take this evidential idea and bring it over into the way we determine you're saved, the way I determine I'm saved, because it's just, there's just no, we'll never know. We'll never know. And I've, I'm, I'm of the belief, and I've always been of the belief, that we can never know. Now, I know it goes against the, the, the decision-type evidence, right? that you have the works evidential side, and you have the decision um, evidential side. The decision evidential side is not so much based on what the works I do, it's based on, I know I made a decision for Christ. Those who reject decisionism, reject this idea that I, I made the decision for God, but believe in election. God elected me, and the way I know that I'm truly elect is because my works will prove it. Um, there, there, there's disagreement there. The, the decision side at least doesn't get caught up in all of this other circular reasoning. The evidential side where I have to look at my works, they get caught up in all this mess. How do you know you're saved? Well, you know you're saved because you do works. Okay, how many works do I have to do to know I'm saved? Well, you have to do this, 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 and this. And as we see, anytime we look at these lists of all the supposed works we're supposed to do, if, if anyone was honest with themselves, no one would pass the test. I, I, th- I think the only way I can know I'm saved is I, that I have placed my faith in Christ. I, 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 here's, the, the, here's, here's what I would say. The only way I know I'm saved is knowing what I'm trusting in for my salvation, that I'm trusting the finished work of Christ, and knowing what I believe. An objective statement of faith, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. I think there has to be a creedal or a confessional or a doctrinal test and a trusting test. What are you trusting in for your salvation? What is your hope of salvation? My hope of salvation cannot be, look at all my works, they prove that I'm saved. No! My hope in salvation has to be, look at what Christ did, it was perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice offered once and for all, my hope is in him. If I look to myself, I'm, gonna be, I'm, I'm never going to know if I'm saved. So I guess to summarize, number one, if you're going to look at the evidential idea, you have to leave the evidence with God, and this is a God thing, and you can't transfer it over to us. If you transfer it over to us, you have to acknowledge that it's a broken, flawed system of, of contradiction, circular reasoning, and um, it's, it's just flawed. And number three, I, would, I guess I would argue that uh, assurance can only come based off a trusting idea. Who am I trusting in? And a a creedal, confessional, doctrinal test. My doctrine can prove that I have true faith in Christ because I believe in the true doctrines of Christianity. Now, this one is subjective. This one has some problems too because every church can come up with their own creedal statement in the Protestant world and there's no historical creedal statement that they have to abide to. They can just make up their own. So at that point, you would just make up your own creedal statement and say, I hold to this and therefore I'm saved. So I, I don't even know if that really works in, 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 in Protestant world 2019 because we're, we're our own doctrinal authority. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. 
When we hear that God is going to judge us according to our works, trying to understand how that fits into a system where I'm supposedly saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, we have to acknowledge this is a difficult task. Some have tried to answer this by saying, well, it's simple. Works prove you're saved. Your work, all you have to do if you want to know if you're saved is look at your works. Your works will be the test. If you can pass the test, then you'll know you'll pass the test in heaven. If you fail the test here, you'll fail the test in heaven. That has been the answer evangelicals and Protestants have offered up for years. I've offered up that, uh, that idea. But when you really start investigating that idea, you begin to realize it's filled with contradictions and it is broken. I think the idea that there is a judgment according to works, and that doesn't determine my salvation, it determines my reward, at least gives some explanation why he can judge according to our deeds, because he will judge everyone according to their deeds, but it will have different impact. When he judges a lost person according to their deeds, they're going to hell. If he judges me according to my deeds, it's going to be whether my work burns up or doesn't burn up, and whether I'm rewarded or not rewarded. But my salvation is secure. Even in 1 Corinthians, it talks about judgment of, of, of a Christian's works, even argues that my works can completely burn up, and yet I can be saved. All right? So I think the, the, the different judgments gives a better answer to this problem. But we have to acknowledge that judgment is according to works. We have to acknowledge that. All right? There's a lot more I could say. I've already preached longer than I did on Wednesday and didn't even say the things I wanted to say because it's so hard trying to do this in an empty sanctuary. But hopefully, at least I've been able to get enough of the information here to be beneficial. I'll have to stop there. There are so many things going on. There was a study released yesterday that seems to destroy the idea of a gay gene, that in other words, people's sexual preferences and behavior is not genetically determined. It's determined by other factors. Um, this is going to be a, a uh, it's an important study. Everyone's going to use it for their own, to try to prove their own point. I just want to make sure I state this for any Christians who, who see this news today. Um, August, what, I think 30th is today. Um, if you see this news today, just as remember, from a Christian perspective, it doesn't matter if someone is born that way or not born that way. That has no bearing on Christian theology when it comes to sexuality. No matter how you're born, the Bible gives you the morality which we are to abide by sexually. Whether we're born that way or not born that way is irrelevant. We have to abide by that, that morality. I am born a heterosexual and I'm born a sinner that is prone to lust, but the Bible condemns lust. It doesn't matter that I'm born that way. The Bible condemns sin, even though I'm born a sinner. Right? I mean, it's just weird that, that, that we get into this argument with homosexuals. No, you're not born that way. It's a choice. Well, I'm born a sinner. Do I get into an argument like, hey, no, you're not born a sinner. It's a choice. No, we're all born sinners, and God's morality goes against the way we were born doesn't matter what that sin shows up as, as sexual sin, as pride, as greed, as covetousness. We're all born with, with a wicked heart. God's morality doesn't care how we are born. Right? Calls for us to be born again and to change and to seek to live according to that standard. It's an important study. We'll be talking about it uh, more definitely over time, but I just want to say that at the end. All right, I'll stop there. There's so many other things I'd like to talk about, but Thank you for listening to this special sermon preached in an empty church 
on August 30th, 2019. Hopefully you're now caught up and we can advance this discussion on Sunday. All right. If you have any questions, email me at newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great weekend. God bless. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.